0: Welcome to a new edition of a combination of neon jazz and famous interviews with Joe Domino with author and writer of the book Dangerous Rhythms, T.J. English. His spectacular book tells the symbiotic story of jazz and the underworld, a relationship fostered in some of 20th century America's most notorious vice districts. For the first half of the century, mobsters and musicians enjoyed a mutually beneficial partnership. The timeline of story, in fact, follows a mincing of jazz legends like Louis Armstrong, Earl Father Hines, Fats Waller, Duke Ellington, Billie Holiday, Lena Horne, and the great Ella Fitzgerald. This is cast against the glare and inevitable momentum of mobsters like Al Capone, Meyer Langsey, and Charlie Lucky Luciano. We cover the revelations and soul of the author and this important story that needed to be told from a jazz aficionado and brilliant writer
1: enjoy this interview
2: tj it's great to meet you man thank you so much for taking a minute out
1: it's my pleasure great to meet you
2: you know i i it just it goes it's such an understatement for for me to say that i love the book i just absolutely love the way you orchestrated just this evolution of jazz and the way the mob worked into especially coming from kansas city i've seen so many of those ghosts in my life to see that you know All of that materialized with the way that you wrote this book has been phenomenal.
1: Yeah. Well, Kansas City is a very important part of the story, and I wanted to make sure that that was included. Uh, People have written about Kansas City. There's a number of great books about that era in Kansas City. But what was so interesting to me about putting this book together was, you know, a book like this had never really been done. Yeah. There had been books dealing with bits and pieces of this story, but the full narrative trajectory of this story was not known. And what, what was not known was how the cities interrelated. How was Kansas City similar to or different from Pittsburgh, uh, Chicago, New York, Denver, all the places where this story played out? And I think what you get to see by laying out the full sweep of the historical narrative is how similar all these places were, that the template that had been laid down for this relationship in New Orleans in the early decades of the 20th century became the template for the music business and the jazz business in the United States for the next 80 or 90 years. So how did you get the bug? How did
2: the nexus of this idea begin in you to say, I'm going full on and this is going to become a book and a project?
1: Well, I had the bug for a long time, long before I got around to writing the book. I think, you know, I fell in love with the music first when when I was a teenager and and began to explore it. And it was so exciting because, you know, by then, uh, the 1970s, jazz was not the popular phenomenon it had been in its heyday of the 20s and 30s and 40s and so on and by the 70s it was on the down low so if you were a jazz aficionado in the 1970s it was by choice and you 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 took it as a as a task a personal task to educate yourself about the music and to learn about the music and so that's how I began to explore the music. And as everyone, every jazz fan knows, if you're a fan of the music, you're not just a fan of the music, you're a fan of the cultural and historical surroundings of the music. You read the biographies of all the great jazz musicians, you read about the different eras. I mean, the liner notes alone for the albums that we used to buy back in the 70s was like an encyclopedia of yeah. knowledge. So I uh, I fell in love with the music which went hand in hand with the process of learning about the story, the cultural story of the music. And then I became a journalist and I I started to focus in on crime as my subject, as a journalist. Um, Crime historically, crime contemporary, mostly organized crime. So I came across this history. I started to come across references to this history, in the various biographies and everything else that I was reading about jazz. And that's what really made me realize that there was a connection here that needed to be explored. I kind of put that idea in my back pocket. I kept it there. I read about this subject wherever I could find things on it over the years, but it wasn't really till COVID COVID hit. and COVID hit, I realized that I was gonna be limited limited in my ability to go out into the world and research subjects. So what I needed was a, a subject that was mostly archival, that was going to be archival research, reading of the books, digging for documentary information, um, oral history interviews with the various musicians, which now you can a- access online. And so it became my COVID book. It kept me sane during the, the COVID period. So what was the first
2: album or concert for you that gave you that jazz bug? I mean, it's kind of like a drug. Once you get it, you just keep coming back to that feeling. What, what was that for you?
1: Well, you know, my parents had some jazz albums around the house. Not much. They were, they, their music tastes were from the 30s and the 40s. So they did have Louis Armstrong. Louis Armstrong was big around the house. And they had Bing Crosby. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, and that's where Bing Crosby's from and so he was there but when i began to explore it on my own you know it's interesting the album that immediately comes to mind i'm not sure it's the very first album that i bought but it's the first album that i remember profoundly and it was a live album uh it was a live latin jazz album uh, recorded in new york city in uh the late 1970s and it had dizzy gillespie playing Monteca, and it had clips from the 50s when Chano Pozo, the great percussionist, was still around. It was these classic recordings from the 50s where where jazz met Latin music, and it was showcased to the mainstream at Carnegie Hall in New York, and that got me onto Latin jazz, and that really uh, kind of reconfigured my brain and 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 still is because Latin jazz became a a passion for me, a version of the music that I, that I dearly love.
2: So in this journey to write the book, there's a part of you that's journalist, but there's also a part, obviously, because you love jazz, that's a fan. What surprised you the most? What did you learn about these musicians and this culture that you were just, you reared away and you were like, my God, I had no idea.
1: Well, a lot, but I'll tell you a few things that were profound and, and were at the core of what I was doing. One was, you know, I had to ask myself the question, where did jazz come from? And, you know, in all the jazz history books, there are answers to that, uh, where the music came from, uh, how it came from the rose up from the plantations and how it was in the jazz, uh, the funerals in New Orleans and Congo Square and all the origins of jazz. But that wasn't telling me enough. That wasn't explaining the revolutionary phenomenon that jazz music was when it came into being in the early years of the 20th century. So I dug deeper, and I came upon this historical historical reality of the period of lynching in the United States, which had gone on for the 30 years previous to the creation of jazz. And the state that had the most lynchings was Louisiana, mm-hmm. where New Orleans is. And I just started to think, I don't we can't ignore that jazz came at the tail end of this period of horror for African-Americans and out of this period of horror came this music that I describe in the book as an as an attempt to reorder the, the universe to to express joy and a will to live in a way that no musical form ever had before. And that was uh, a light bulb moment to me. That was a revelation. It's still it's still a light bulb moment to me. It's it's changed the way I listen to the music, especially the early versions of jazz uh, in, in New Orleans and in Chicago in the 20s and 30s, especially where all those New Orleans musicians were coming from, uh, Louis Armstrong and, and others. Um, that was mind-blowing to me. The other thing that was mind-blowing to me is is the way this story existed not only in the obvious places like Kansas City and Chicago and New York, but everywhere, Pittsburgh, Denver, Los Angeles, of course, and uh, the Central Avenue Jazz District. Um, wherever jazz took hold, this business relationship between the musicians and the club owners who were mobsters became the foundation in every city. So you could go to a place like Denver and go to a local jazz club in Denver And it was going to be owned by the local mafiosi. And it was going to have that same dynamic that you would have if you went to a club in Chicago. So this was much more of a national story than I had anticipated.
2: So if you could go back, and and the beauty of your book is you orchestrate all of these stories of these fabled, beautiful shows that all these cats put on. From Count Basie, Louis Armstrong, Charlie Parker. If you could go back into your book... And watch one of those shows with your own eyes. What would you have loved to have seen?
1: <laughs> That's a great question. Um, the, well, the the obvious answer to that is the Cotton Club in the late 1920s, because the house band at the Cotton Club was, um, you know, was uh, the great Duke Ellington, and so that would have been he- hearing the Duke Ellington Orchestra when it was coming into being as a as uh, a symphonic. Uh, expression of jazz music that was on another level from everything that had come before. What Duke Ellington was doing in those years at the Cotton Club cannot be underestimated. It was just phenomenal what he was doing there. Um, so, and 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 I think Duke Ellington knew very well that he was doing it in the quote-unquote underworld. It was a uh, the Cotton Club was owned by gangsters, an Irish American gangster named Oni Madden. It was a segregated club, so the audience was all white people, as were most of the clubs in the 20s and 30s and on into the 40s. So uh, Ellington knew he was performing in this club run by mobsters, that he was performing to an audience of white people, many of whom came to Harlem to the Cotton Club to uh, quote-unquote slum in African-American culture. He knew all this, and he was incorporating it into the music. So all that seductive, sensual, uh, slightly naughty, mysterious, dangerous music that Ellington was creating in the 20s, songs like The Mooch, Black and Tan Fantasy, um, he knew exactly what he was doing. He was creating music uh, of the underworld, by the underworld, for the underworld. Um, So I would have loved to have seen that. The other thing, of course, that I would have loved to have seen was the 18th and Vine District in Kansas City in its heyday uh, would have been something to see. And then also the uh, 52nd Street era in New York City in the 1940s. Any of these great jazz eras, you know, where the streets were just lined with jazz clubs and all the local greats would play. But not only that, all the greats that were coming through town and were playing at these clubs. This was this was The world of jazz as we know it, the late night jam sessions after the club closes, uh, the fraternizing between the musicians and the criminal types who would come into the club and hang out late into the night, the jazz scene, the classic jazz scene that unfortunately doesn't really exist anymore in the way that it did during those eras that I'm talking about. You know, the one thing that was so
2: good about something like The Sopranos is they humanized these people that were pretty sinister, that did very bad things to people. You did that as well with all of these mob leaders, but you humanized them to a way where there's a level of them that were endearing. Of all of those mob characters in your book, if you could have sat down with one of them and just laid out your journalistic wares, who would that have been?
1: Well, this is a great subject, and um, let me say, I, I try to do that in all my books. You know, this is uh, this was my ninth book, and I write about all different ethnicities of, of criminals in the underworld. And the, the fact of the matter is, uh, yes, many of them are sociopaths or psychopaths, but many of them are just average guys who get drawn into this world for one reason or another and, and, and wind up in, in the middle of a situation, often get in over their heads. Uh, and this is fascinating to me, that it's just the story of various human beings who maybe make some bad choices in their lives that get them drawn into this criminal underworld that's that has been so vibrant in the United States throughout the 20th century and into the 21st century. I think the the answer to that would be uh, Mo Levy. Mo Levy, who was not technically a gangster he was a club owner but he was a gangster wannabe and he he partnered with with mafiosi straight up partnered with mafiosi and he was the he was the founder and owner of birdland the great club birdland which still exists today and anyone who comes to new york should go to birdland um he was a tough bastard and, and he was uh he ripped off the musicians um but generally like they liked working with him because He gave them opportunities and he had a kind of a sophisticated, progressive appreciation of jazz. I mean, he's one of the, he was one of the main presenters of bebop. You know, and when bebop came along, bebop was, was complex and non-commercial music. And it wasn't, it wasn't for everybody. It kind of separated the men from the boys. Only the true aficionados really understood uh, bebop. And um, at Birdland, um, and through his record label, um, Roulette Records, um, Levy showcased it. He didn't shy away from uh, bebop, he showcased it. And he became one of the preeminent presenters of that music. And so, you know, um, with the gangsters, um, I think you could say hey, there's the good and the bad. You know, like all human beings, there's the good and the bad. Some of them were a lot worse than others. Um, I mean, some of them really loved the music. Al Capone loved jazz and was a patron of the music and had four or five clubs in Chicago in the 20s where he put the music on. Uh, You know, to to the criminal underworld, and particularly in the 1920s, jazz music was like hip-hop was to gangsters in the 1980s or 90s. It was the soundtrack of their life. They felt that it was expressing a certain existential reality about living life on the edge. Uh living living life that was and a life that was unconventional, living a life that answered to its own rhythmic patterns, not the rhythmic patterns of what was popular in the culture. Um, it's fascinating that way. Um, and doing this book really and helped enlighten me about the full dimensions of that aspect of jazz, and it's one of the things about jazz that I really find endearing. And I hope we don't lose because I know a lot of I know a lot of jazz historians and critics and aficionados have tended to look down on this history over the over the years, and maybe that's why this book was never written. You know, um, there's a certain amount of shame that um if we're going to elevate jazz in the culture we need to whitewash this history well i hope we don't whitewash this history this is an important part of the roots of jazz so
2: you know i see you not only as a writer but as somebody that's that's a creative force that's painting a picture with what you do you you fill in a lot of gaps of what people may have loosely known and why i say that is is that you're not just the creator it has to move you as well how did this book change your life
1: wow great question um you know it's true i'm not just a writer when it comes to jazz i um here in new york i was the presenter of a latin jazz series um called dangerous rhythms uh that we had at a club here in new york called zinc that we were doing right up until covid hit and um so I feel a strong allegiance to the music and the culture of jazz, and um, so to me this book was at presenting the culture uh, and the context for a better understanding of the music, a deeper understanding of the music, and a deeper sympathy especially for the musicians and what they've been through and what they've inherited because of these relationships that became the foundation of, of the music business, the jazz business. Um, I should make that point, you know, the book is not so much about the music of jazz. It's about the business of jazz. Um, and it's about those relationships and and how and why jazz got off on the foot that it got off on and how that became the, the, the template, or really the entire music business in America, because these jazz, relationships also became the operating principle in rock and roll and hip-hop and other forms of American music. Um, It's touched me deeply. It brought me into a very personal and intimate relationship with this history and the great uh, characters of this history. You know, when I was writing this book, thanks to streaming, you know, you can listen to the music instantaneously as you're writing it. So I'm writing about the Cotton Club in the 1920s and I just, I bring up all that music and play it while I'm writing. And what that does is it conjures up the spirits. It, it conjures up the the actual physical presence of the spirits of these eras. And so I felt like I was walking hand in hand with Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington and, and uh, Earl Father Hines and Count Basie And all these great musicians who were dealing with this reality in the eras that they were dealing with it in. Uh, So I feel altered. I feel altered by, by this book in a way that I don't think I had been by any other book that I've written. The one thing that's
2: clear about you, too, when I follow you on social media is that you're very active in the jazz scene. You you see a lot of shows. It's very much part of your blood. This is not something that you constructed that was passive. You're very active and you did do a very good evolutionary job from the beginning to the end of the book. But as you look at 2023 now, how how convinced or or, or how optimistic are you about what we're doing with jazz as it evolves into the future?
1: Mm, yeah great question again. um well, as you notice at the end of the book it was it was really important to me that this be not just a book of history about these eras that happened long ago and that it would tap into nostalgia about jazz history and if you'll notice at the end of the book, I bring it right up to the present day i i address I address the 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 residue and the implications of this these relationships and what it has meant for jazz in the contemporary sense. What happened when this relationship ended was broken down in the 1980s when when the RICO laws were used to take down organized crime and jazz waned in popularity in the culture. And there was a period there where jazz was on, I would say, shaky, shaky ground in the 1980s. They no longer had these jazz clubs. And, you know, the thing about the jazz clubs controlled by the mob was they didn't have to make money. They were just fronts for money laundering operations for the criminals. The the criminals used the jazz clubs as a way to launder money from the more profitable uh, criminal rackets like narcotics and gambling and other things. And so the jazz clubs didn't have the burden of having to make a profit. And that was great for jazz. That's kind of what sustained it during the 40s and 50s and on into the 60s. But when this relationship was taken down, there was a real question there for a while. Would jazz survive? How would jazz survive? What form would it have to take for it to survive if it wasn't going to be these old smoky basement clubs where jazz had thrived for so long? And what we saw in the 80s and on into the 90s was cu- cultural institutions in many cities step forward and pick up the slack. And so you had uh, the Link- Jazz Lincoln Center here in New York City, San Francisco Jazz Center. You know, these are private institutions, people with money that love the music we're bringing jazz from the gutters into the cultural mainstream. And, and that is a way in which jazz reinvented itself in the eighties and nineties. And now, so now here we are, jazz now exists. There's still a lot of the great old clubs. Kansas city has a few, uh, New York still has the village Vanguard. Chicago still has, um, Green Mill, which is great, great old club. Um, maybe the oldest in the United States. Uh, and so the old clubs are there, and then now jazz is presented at some of these institutions. They're expensive. Some people complain that they're kind of elitist, but they have become sort of the repositories for jazz, to preserve jazz as the significant American art form that it is. Um, what worries me a bit is with the break with the coming of the internet and the, basically the death of the music business as, a, as an economically sustainable model, it's been hard on the musicians. I mean, how do you make a living? You no longer uh, uh, put out albums or even CDs where you make your money. Um, the musicians that survive, they do it by playing in live clubs and live venues, but that's not much of a living, man. That's That's scuffling a lot of that. And so a lot of musicians, uh, as you probably know, knowing musicians, a lot of them have gone into academia. They teach. That's become kind of a lifesaver for a lot of uh, musicians and people in the jazz business. They have a teaching gig, and that's really how they make their living. So I worry about the economic viability of the music and whether or not there's an economic model where musicians can make a living at it. in in a way that they can practice their craft on a daily basis. Because one thing I know living in in Manhattan is there's more musicians out there than ever. There's a lot of talent. There's a lot of young talent. I marvel at how many great young musicians are out there, but they have a really hard time um, making themselves known to the public the ways in which you used to do that in the past with an album or a CD is, is no longer viable. So they're out there on the hustings, you know, playing in clubs, trying to promote themselves online, but it ain't what it used to be. Yeah, They're, they're not getting rich. Nobody gets rich in the jazz business. And, yeah. and, as a, and as a musician said to me recently, uh, he said, you know what? I wear that as a badge of distinction. He said, jazz is supposed to be tough. It's, it's, it's music for the people who truly love the music. It's not music that's spoon-fed to the mass audience. It's a it's it's music for people who seek it out, and and appreciate it, and uh, dearly love it. Um, and so I think that's still alive. That still exists. Those of us who love it patronize it as much as we can. Uh, that's still as strong as ever. Um, the the question is the is the larger economic framework. I love that thought. This book is wonderful, Dangerous Rhythms. I
2: recommend anyone out there pick this up. It's coming out in a new incarnation. If you want to give us the details, we'll send everybody out to get a copy. Yeah,
1: actually, today as we speak is is officially the first day that it comes out as a paperback. So you can get it anywhere, Amazon, your local. I would prefer you go to your local bookstore and get it. Uh, it's in paperback now. Wonderful, TJ. This has been a profound honor. Thank you, sir, for taking Thank time you. out.
2: I loved it. A lot of great questions.
0: Thanks for listening and tuning in to another combo of neon jazz and famous interviews with Joe Domino, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players and writers in New York City, Kansas City, New Orleans, and spots all over the globe, giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to TJ for his insight and cool. If you want to hear more neon jazz and famous interviews with Joe Domino, you can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to us at YouTube, and for everything neon jazz and famous interviews, you can find us on the web. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends.
1: Neon Jazz.